Hello, it's Martin. You know, Martin, from the podcast that you're listening to. This week I talked far too much about the life of Ibn Battuta, and so I've split it into two episodes. The second part will be coming out on the 26th of April, but for the meantime, enjoy part one. Welcome to All Points In Between. I'm Martin. I'm a itinerant tramp who lives in a motorhome. And I'm joined today by Matt, who keeps me sane by being none of those things. Hello. Hi, Matt. So this week, we are going to be getting medieval on you, going back to the 1300s to talk about one of the most interesting and well-traveled people that I've come across, Ibn Battuta. So, Matt, I told you a little earlier on this week that we were doing an episode on this guy. Um, have you come across him before? Do you know that much about him? Not really, no. I mean, obviously, I did the standard uh, Wikipedia search and had a little bit of a look around. Um, and I am actually very interested in that period of history. It's a, it's a particularly uh, you know, interest of mine. So, yeah, but uh, I haven't done a lot of research on him specifically. So looking forward to learning more. Oh, I think I think both of us have burned far too much of our lives playing medieval total war and <laughs> things. so we've got a bit of a grounding in in the world that Ibn Battuta lived in and I don't think it's surprising that you haven't heard that much about him I imagine a lot of our western listeners won't have done I was recently reading this Andrew Marr book it's called A History of the World and in the 600 odd pages of this book Ibn Battuta gets a grand total of one sentence in it compared to an entire section on his near contemporary Marco Polo and I think that's perhaps understandable given that the book is aimed at a western audience who are probably a bit more familiar with Polo and his travels but if you are from the Middle East and North Africa region and particularly Tangier, where I'm parked up at the moment, then you will definitely have heard of this guy. And I will probably just be telling you a lot of stuff that you already know. He's rightly con considered one of Tangier's most famous sons. The main football stadium in the city is named after him, the International Airport. There's a large museum that's dedicated to his travels, which is actually where I first came across him when I was here a couple of months ago. Also, funnily enough, has a crater on the moon named after him. It's also where I ended up getting this quite sweet T-shirt that I'm wearing at the moment. Um, well, you might not. Oh, very uh, nice. I, I will probably post it up, but yeah, kind of cool. I'm not really sure where I'm going to be able to wear it, though, because it is just a picture of a bearded <laughs> man with some... <laughs> black like some black arabic writing on a white background which if you can't read arabic like neither of us can it does look somewhat worryingly like the flag of the taliban so i'm not really sure where i'm going to be able to wear this shirt well in arabic speaking countries presumably but yeah i think you can you can you can you can wear it there <laughs> yeah just as long as it doesn't actually say look at this stupid tourist who bought this shirt which it quite possibly does do. And he is 
famous, as I mentioned, a lot across a lot of the rest of the Islamic world. So in Dubai, there is a large shopping centre that's named after him, which is a bit like a Vegas casino. It's all got themed areas based on the different regions that he's travelled to, which is yeah quite quite interesting. And the museum itself, it if you are visiting Tangier, it is very interesting. It's about 50 dirhams to get in, which is about four quid. And gives you all the background knowledge that I started using as a jumping off point for doing the research for this episode. So I can really recommend that as a place to go. Excellent. The main source that I'm using for this episode is a is the book that Ibn Battuta himself wrote when, well, actually he didn't write it, he dictated it to somebody else. But he did this when he came back from his travels and there's a version of it that's translated into English by a guy called H.A.R. Gibb and that was published in the 1920s. I've decided that it is the definitive edition because it was free to download. Um, I'll, (laughs) I'll also include a link in the show notes for anybody who does want to read that because the translation it is all in modern English obviously and it is quite an easy read it is just a very interesting book and yeah as as you can imagine Mm. with the amount of traveling that we'll be talking about here I could very easily have done a four or five part episode on this but I will try and keep it to one for the time being and perhaps come back to it at some point in the future Mm -hmm. just to start us off Matt and you might already know the answer to this if you scanned his Wikipedia page. Do you want to have a guess in the 1300s at how far this guy travelled? Um, I'll, I'll give you a bit of a benchmark. So Marco Polo, in the course of his travels, he went 18,000 miles across the ones that are documented in his book. All right. So, yeah, Marco Polo did 18,000. I'm going to guess he's done a lot more. Uh, I'd say roughly twice, so maybe 30,000, 40,000 miles. Not that close, I'm afraid. Oh, no. It was 73,000 miles. Wow. He managed to travel over the course of around 30 years or so. And how was he doing that? Was he he riding? Was he sailing? There was a bit of sailing. We'll talk a little bit about where he did end up sailing to. But mm-hmm. most of that, he is walking, which wow. is pretty impressive. Well, so he walking, didn't skip leg day then? Certainly didn't. Well, walking <laughs> and possibly on the back of camels at various points. He spends a bit of time with the Mongols, so I think there was probably quite a bit of horse riding going on as well. But mm. 73,000 miles in 1300s, as it happens... Abby, my van, has just crossed the 73,000 mile mark, and that's taken her since 2005. So even with modern technology, we're not, well, only just keeping up with old Dibbon. Impressive. For people who are unlike us, who haven't burned large chunks of their life playing medieval total war and crusader kings, I will start by giving a bit of an overview of the world that Batuta was born into. He was 
born and raised in the Myrinid Sultanate. These guys, for you total warheads out there, are known as the Moors. The faction, anyway. For most of his life, this Sultanate covered parts of modern-day Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, went through phases of being responsible for the Al-Andalus section of Spain, mm. and it survived and thrived for a period of around 250 years. But the events of Batuta's life are taking place against the backdrop of the beginning of the end of this empire. There is a period in his travels where he goes to Andalusia during the period of the Reconquista, which is the period where Spain was becoming Spain, and part of that process was kicking out Muslims and Jewish people because, you know, Spain are lovely like that. <laughs> but when he did get over there, the leader of the Spanish armies, King Alfonso, he died of plague and the war got called off. So he ended up just using it as an excuse to do a bit of sightseeing instead, which I can totally get on board with. So what would he have done if, if the, the war was on? Was he, was he actually fighting in the war or was he just sort of advising? He was, or? He was planning on going to fight. He did, he did sail over there with a bunch of soldiers. He was mm. in his 40s by the point when he was going over there. And so mm. I, I know I, well, I'm 35. I certainly think my war fighting days are past me. But in the <laughs> end, he, he didn't have to fight. He, he just got to go on a, well, another holiday or an extension to his 30-odd year holiday that he had. So he just went on a holiday with 40 armed soldiers or so. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Which, yeah. if military history is anything to go by, just means a lot of dysentery. Yeah. And it's... <laughs> Not really the theme of this episode, so I won't go into loads of detail, but as I mentioned, he was from this Myrinid Sultanate. And if you are in Fez, which is the old capital of the Sultanate here in Morocco, then there are some royal tombs here that are above the city, and they're really worth a walk up to. I was there a couple of weeks ago, and you get this beautiful view over the city with these old, crumbling ancient tombs of all of the old Myrinid kings, and it's a pretty interesting place. So anyway, we will move on to the man himself. As we're going through all of this, I'm going to pronounce everything completely incorrectly, and I can only apologise in advance. Abu Abdullah Muhammad Ibn Battuta, commonly known as simply Ibn Battuta, was born in 1304 in the lovely city of Tangier, where I am parked up at the moment. He was born about 10 years after Marco Polo returned to Venice from his travels. So they are near contemporaries and do travel to quite a lot of the same places as they were both getting around. His family were Berbers. The Berbers at the time were the ruling ethnic group in the Myrinid Sultanate. And his family were had a background as Islamic legal scholars. So these people would often act as judges in various disputes. They would be advisors to royals and other government officials. It was certainly he certainly wasn't upper class, but fairly comfortable middle-class upbringing and he himself went into the family trade and learned to be a his well legal scholar 
which is how he managed to fund a lot of his traveling around because it did make it a lot easier to just kind of pick up jobs as he was going. Because of the location of Tangier, it's, in terms of the Islamic world, it is way out on the edge of things. So the empire, well, the caliphate, runs from essentially Tangier way out in the west all the way over to Pakistan, well, modern-day Pakistan, India area out the east. At the time, I should have read about this before, but so I'm not sure whether it had happened yet, but you had perhaps Java as well, if you're going out that far east. So it was mm. a bit out on the edge of things, but it was still a pretty cosmopolitan place. Its location is at the mouth of the Mediterranean Sea. It's just across the water from Spain, from where I'm parked up at the moment, I can just about see individual buildings on the Spanish side of the water when it's clear enough. So it is very close to that. And because of that, you do get a lot of passing traffic in the world, you know, people entering the Mediterranean, people crossing over from Spain. And so it would have been quite a normal part of his life to be mixing with people traveling through the city from across the Islamic world and the wider world as well. There's not a lot written about his life before we started traveling. Most of what we know about his life does come from his own book, The Travels of Ibn Battuta. And so if he doesn't write about something, we tend not to know that much about it. But he, as I did mention, received an education in the family trade. It worked out as being a quite a nice money spinner for him when he was on his trips. And I can also recommend that as a thing for anybody who is looking to live a life on the road. I personally have done almost the modern era version of that and moved into data protection, which is a job that does allow you to get around as well. <laughs> Basically working with computers, anything like that allows you to spend a lot of your time driving around seeing stuff. It's interesting, though, because, I mean, these days, obviously, a judge wouldn't. It's not a very good job for, for moving around. But I, I suppose because everywhere was using Sharia law or something equivalent, it was like having the same legal system everywhere. I guess that made it easier for him to do that. Yeah, absolutely. The spread of Islam across that bit of the world was so rapid that you did end up with this common language of Arabic. You had a fairly common legal system. And a lot of the places, so he wasn't actually a qualified judge. He did kind of fake it till he made it a little bit mm. with that. But particularly when he was traveling through places that were a bit less off the beaten track, they were often in need of somebody who had that kind of knowledge, who could provide advice to rulers. And it did, did make it a lot easier for him to get in with a lot of, rulers i think he was probably quite a charismatic guy as well because the amount of times that he gets free stuff from the people <laughs> who are ruling the place yeah. he travels through certainly a lot better at mooching than i am so ibn batuta he set off on his first trip when he was 21 years old he left tangier to do the hajj pilgrimage and the Hajj is a mandatory trip that all Muslims are supposed to make at one point in their life. It involves travelling to Mecca, where the religion really got off the ground, and doing various rituals when you are there. 
And it was quite a good way, particularly in that era, to get your traveling started. Because his family couldn't exactly say no to him, saying that he wanted to go off on a pilgrimage. Whereas I think if he just said, I want a gap year, then they might have been a bit less open to that idea. And also because when you are on pilgrimage, there was an obligation on the rulers of territories that you were passing through to help pilgrims or certainly at least not hinder their progress. Well, once he got to Mecca and did his Hajj, rather than turning back and heading home, he decided to carry on from there and did about 73,000 miles over the course of 30 years. And when he got back to Tangier, he then he was then asked by the ruler of the city to dictate his travels to this scholar called Ibn Juzay, who is actually the guy who wrote his book, The Travels of Ibn Battuta. But mm -hmm. it was dictated from his, mostly from his memories of his trip. So he wasn't writing as he went, he just sort of remembered everything when he came back? There doesn't seem to be evidence that he kept journals, and he never mentions having done so. And I think mm. certainly some of the stories he tells are pretty embellished or we'll be talking about his description of a rhino that he saw, which suggests that, yeah, perhaps he saw it quite a while ago and didn't really remember what they looked like. <laughs> so, Big so animal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think you've got you've to gotta take some of what he says in his book with a pinch of salt. But mm. yeah, because it does, well, you do embellish over time. On previous episodes, I have made some jokes about the All Points podcast that we sound a little bit like and the themes of some of their episodes. But I can assure you that none of the hosts of that show, or indeed probably anybody else you've ever met, has laid quite as much cable across so much of the world as Ibn Battuta did. He married at least 10 women. He rarely talks about his marriages. Um, during his travels. He only mentions having four children in the book, but there were at least ten wives, there were plenty of concubines, and he does quite frequently talk about the ladies of the places that he's been visiting. One of my favourites was during his travels in India. He says of the women of Dawat Abad that God has endowed them with a special beauty, and they have in intercourse a deliciousness and knowledge of erotic movements beyond that of other women. Okay. My working title for this episode is Ibn Battuta, Sexy Moroccan Marco Polo. And I'll send you some pictures of him now, if I can. Yeah, I'll send oh, you yes. across some pictures. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Very dashing. He is certainly a sauce pot. I'll include those pictures when I put the episode up as well. The top one is from a 2009 short film called Journey to Mecca, which is, well, just covers his first trip, really, his first of five hajjis that he went on. Mm. And, yeah, he. Um, I've seen a few of her videos and things in documentaries, and I think you definitely need to be a solid eight to be able to play this guy on screen seems to be the general rule so perhaps are, also... there, are there any contemporary pictures of him or you know is there anything that we can see from from the actual period or um there are some pictures from the actual period they 
tend to be a bit like other photos from the 1300s and have you know that they kind of flat because they hadn't worked out proportion yet until the renaissance showed up mm. but yep. yeah i'll i'll see if i can find some more pictures and i might send those over to you a bit later on as we go so as we're running through this i will just pick out a few quotes that i quite like from his travels and the book that he wrote and the first one that did kind of speak to me a bit was when he does first set out off on this hatch so he says um i set out alone having neither fellow traveler in whose companionship i might find cheer nor caravan whose party that i might join i forsook my home as birds forsake their nests my parents being yet in the bonds of life it weighed sorely upon me to part from them and both they and i were afflicted with sorrow at this separation and i think that i found that quite interesting just because it does somewhat reflect the trip that i do just because it does involve a lot of travel alone i do obviously miss my family and friends when i'm away and the way that i do travel it does it does mean that you have to be very happy in your own company because I tend not to talk to people quite a lot of the time. But just throughout the book, there are, as I mentioned, it is all written in very modern English. And it's not just a dispassionate list of where he goes and what he does. It is, he does very much go into his feelings about situations as well, which is quite interesting to see over 700 years of, well, history between him and us. Mm -hmm. So after this, Batuta does say goodbye to his family. He sets off on the road, heading across the north of North Africa, so the Mediterranean coast. Um, The first bit that I really found quite interesting was when he arrives in Egypt. He first arrives in the city of Alexandria. And during the time when he's there, the city's famous lighthouse was still standing at that point it was one of the wonders of the ancient world at at the time it was one of only two so that and the pyramids that were still standing but it was in a well when he writes about it he does mention that it was in quite a bad state of disrepair at that point but while he's in the city he spends his time hanging out with academics, religious scholars, various aesthetics who live out on the edge of the city and gets a bit of work, you know, doing his gap year job. A couple of these aesthetics who he meets, they do tell him that he's destined to be a great traveller. Although, to be fair, I think a financially successful fortune teller will usually tell you what they want to, what you want to hear. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, they could probably tell what they wanted to do here. <laughs> I think so, yeah. But one of them, who was called um, Baram Aldum the Lame, tells him, you must certainly, if God will, visit my brother Fahad al-Din in India and my brother Lukan al-Din Zakira in Sindh, which is modern-day Pakistan, and also my brother Buran al-Din in China. And when he gets them, okay. can convey to them a greeting from me which i do also quite like just 
I will travel across the world to these people. What message would you like me to convey? Just tell them I said hi. So did he actually meet them? Were they real people? I mean, what was... Oh, yeah, he, he does meet them. Indeed, as part of this, he's also told that one of them, that the last one he meets in China will save his life. And it does actually, well, certainly according to Ibn Battuta and the story that he tells, that does also happen. Like mm. I say, might need to take it with a pinch of salt. But yeah, and younger listeners might not necessarily know that in the days before WhatsApp and Zoom, we did just have to send blokes with messages to each other. So I, I can imagine this ascetic saying to him, oh, yeah, just when you see my brother, just say hi, sup, do a winky face. It was it was the 1300s. They didn't really understand the nuance of the winky face. I should also mention when he was on his way to Alexandria through Tunis, he did marry two of his 10 wives. One of them lasted for um, several days. One of them lasted for about a month or so, and then he was hitting the road again. But this was a, a practice at the time, wasn't it? Because I've heard of this elsewhere that that, that they would have these short-term marriages um, as a sort of like a, a, a side a way of working around the laws on on marriage and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, I think there were parts of the Muslim world at the time where that was the case, and. A little later in his travels, he goes to Mauritius, where it was very common for them to have these short-term marriages for a month or two. And then if they actually decided that they didn't like each other, then they'd split up. So it was a bit more like dating and being in relationships and, yeah, like say, a little bit of a workaround to, you know, allow you to. Mm. But, yeah, it was perhaps more common during the era. Although when Idan is in Mauritius, he is quite shocked by the practice and tries to discourage it among other people. So, you know, what's good for the goose might not be good for the gander as far as he's concerned. Yeah. A little bit of a hypocrite then. Okay. <laughs> some, somewhat. <laughs> some, some might, some certainly might say that. Hmm. So after leaving Alexandria, he carries on with his pilgrimage. He gets to Mecca. It is quite a major experience for him in his life. He does decide that he's not going to go back to Tangier at this point. There is the opportunity for him to get on a caravan that is heading back home, but he decides to take a job travelling with a caravan that's carrying on out east. So he does carry on out into what is modern-day Iraq and Syria, spends a bit of time in Iran, travels up to Central Asia, hangs out with the Mongols, as I mentioned. But what I'm going to do is skip forward because I'm just picking through some of his favourite bits, some of my favourite bits, really. And I'm going to talk about his travels in India. Batuta, after his travels around Central Asia and Byzantine Empire, he arrives in Sindh, which is in modern-day Pakistan, in the Islamic year 734, which, if I get my conversion right, is around 1333 in the Western calendar. So by this point, he's been on the road for about eight years. And he mentions that the king of, he refers to him as the king of India, but the king of this northern part of what we would say is 
modern day India and Pakistan. The the Sultan Abu Ul Mahid Muhammad Shah, he makes practice of honouring strangers and showing affection to them by singling them out for governorships and high dignitaries of state. And from my reading, the reason that he did this was he was quite a odd oddball of a ruler, perhaps um well perhaps not that odd for a ruler actually. He was very paranoid and he didn't mm. really like giving too much power to anybody who was from the country because he thought that they might overthrow him. So he liked having people who were in his favour to give these kind of high civil service and governorship jobs to. That's actually quite a common thing in the period. Like they would off, they would often appoint governors. I mean, even even going back to the Roman times, where they had a, they would send troops from one part of the empire to the other part, so that they wouldn't have any local allegiances, they wouldn't have any local network. Basically, it means that they're completely dependent on him because he's the only person they know. So it's yeah, it's quite a common thing to do. Yeah, yeah and it certainly helps keep him in power for an awful long time, and does mean that. Ibn Battuta ends up spending a lot longer here than he does in many of his other places. He's there for several years in the end. Mm. The way that this works when these foreigners arrive in the country, because there was Muhammad Shah, he was one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest person on the planet at the time, and word had gone out across the Islamic world that he was looking for people to do these governorship jobs and work in the civil service. So he had a lot of people pounding a path to his door. And the way that he would decide who he was going to give these roles to was partly based on qualifications, but you also needed to be able to present uh, Mohammed Shah with a gift, which if you did end up getting a job with him, he would end up repaying you in a gift of about three times the value that you gave him. So I was wondering, Matt, do you want to have a bit of a guess at some of the things that Ibn Battuta bought for the king as part of his job application? Oh, interesting. I mean, the most obvious one to me would, would be spices or, or some sort of like, because uh, I know a lot of the trade, you know, silks and spices were the things that were valued. So maybe he'd try and parlay that into, into something. But um, yeah, I'm curious. Yep, yeah, there were definitely spices in there. There were horses, there were camels. There was a certain other species that walks around on two legs and does work. Slaves. Yep. Yes, slaves. Um, I suppose, you know, goes goes with the era, unfortunately. Mm. Although, having said that, I have just come back from Mauritania fairly recently and... Um, Thankfully, when you're there, you're not expected to pay your tourist visa in blokes, unlike during Ibn Battuta's time visiting India. But I do have another, well, I don't know whether it's a fun fact. I suppose it's a very bleak fact, actually. But Mauritania was the last country in the world to abolish slavery. Do you want to have a guess at the year they did that? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I, I mean, it could be one of those things where it was still technically on the books until recently, although maybe had been weaned out. But I have also heard that in the modern era, there's as many or even more slaves than there were in history. So I don't know. I, w- I would say maybe, yeah, maybe 1990s. Oh, that, yeah, that is better than I thought you were going to guess, actually. It was 1981. 
Okay. And okay. slavery mm. was abolished. So a, li- a little better that you said. Mm. But mm. I thought still shockingly recently. Um, oh, yeah. Just, yeah. Very much so. Just give some context as to just how recently that was. The first series of Only Fools and Horses was broadcast in 1981. In Mauritania, you could have watched the early antics of Del Boy and Rodney while a person who you legally owned mixed drinks. Only only non-alcoholic drinks, though, because alcohol was and still is illegal in Mauritania. Mm. It, which seems like a bit of an odd hill to die on, that you can be arrested for cracking open a beer after work, but until 1981, there was a big thumbs up for owning people. But, uh, were there lots of slaves at the time, or was it like just a, a you know was it was it a, a, a big thing? It was still a fairly common practice, so mm. it wasn't the sort of slavery that you see in, say, the American South. You know, with kind of big plantations and industries built off back of it. It was more that you would have a domestic, well, what what now ends up getting called a domestic servant, but. As you mentioned, in quite large bits of the world, they are still effectively slaves, but it would have been that yeah. sort of individual for the most part. Yeah, yeah so Ibn Batuta does buy some slaves and some camels and some horses and some spices, provides them to the king along with a bit of a CV saying that I've travelled around all of these bits of the world. As I mentioned, he's been on the road for about eight years by this point. And he does get taken on as a judge for this somewhat paranoid king. Did you enjoy that? Well, you've listened to it for 30 minutes, so I'm going to chalk that up as a win. Join us again on the 26th of April for part two. There'll be rhinos, topless people, and even more despotic rulers. In the meantime, if you want to contact us, you can do so via Twitter, at allpointscast or email allpointspod at gmail.com. Speak to you in a couple of weeks.